We are on the eve of what could be a massive and historic strike of auto workers against the big three U.S.-based car makers. The contract covering 150,000 members of the United Auto Workers expires on Thursday. But these hugely profitable corporate giants have so far refused to meet the union's demands for fair pay and protection from mass layoffs. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. We are excited to have Professor Richard Wolf join us again for our regular weekly segment where we talk about the biggest stories related to the economy, the state of the working class, and the crimes of big business. I'm your host, Brian Becker. The Socialist Program brings you content several days a week thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com forward slash the socialist program. We appreciate everyone's support and encourage you, if you're not yet, to become a patron, especially if you enjoy listening or relying on this show and this program. Richard Wolff is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He's the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. You can check out all of his work at rdwolf.com. That's rdwolff.com. Professor Wolf, welcome back. Thank you, Brian. Glad to be here. Well, this is big news. I mean, last month, the UPS workers, Teamsters, almost went on strike. They decided not to strike. Their contract passed by 86% because they figured, at least the great majority of the workers, that they had by preparing for a strike and preparing well for a strike and showing that they were, in fact, willing to strike, they won a big contract and big gains without having to strike. Now the UAW workers, the United Auto Workers, at one time, perhaps the premier union in the country, representing even a larger number, hundreds of thousands of industrial workers working in auto, they have prepared for a strike. The members, the 150,000 members of the UAW at the big three, Ford, General Motors, and Stellantis are bargaining for new contracts and preparing to strike as early as September 14th. Richard, I want to read to you from the Wall Street Journal. This is going to shock you because they oppose the union. Here it is. Despite their higher labor costs, Detroit automakers have been raking in profits by dint of their popular SUVs and trucks. But their future profitability isn't guaranteed as government EV mandates will impose hefty costs and make their gas-powered SUVs and trucks obsolete. Ford lost nearly $60,000 on each EV it sold during this year's first quarter. Automakers are currently using profits from gas power vehicles to ramp up EV production and subsidize their sales. Mr. Fain, this is the president of the auto worker, risks, this is the Wall Street Journal advising him, risks repeating the mistake of his predecessors 
by making demands that render U.S. automakers and workers uncompetitive against non-union foreign rivals with factories in southern right-to-work states. Detroit automakers' market share shrank to 47% in 2008 from 71% in 1998. Growing losses eventually pushed Chrysler and GM into bankruptcy. Tens of thousands of union workers lost jobs, et cetera, et cetera. Richard, this narrative, like, what do we also remember about 2008 when there was a big shrinkage of yeah. automakers' market share? I mean, and the, the companies went bankrupt, but it had nothing to do with the UAW contract. And again, unless the workers continue to cut their own real pay, they can't compete with people who are stuck in non-union jobs that actually can't pay as much because the workers aren't as strong in those places. Anyway, this could be huge, could be big. And of course, the mainstream corporate-owned media like the Wall Street Journal is going to be nonstop anti-union. Let's talk about it. Yes, well, you have a problem with the uh, automobile industry. I mean, every industry is unique, but the automobile industry has a special set of issues, problems, conditions that the union and the managers face. Let's just go through a few of them. The dominance of the United States in the automobile industry is long gone. Other parts of the world are producing automobiles. If you add it all up, we have what economists call excess capacity. That is, we have developed in the United States and around the world, a capacity to produce more cars than can profitably be sold. That is a fundamental problem. It's irrational, right? We shouldn't have, as a human race, produced more capacity than we can afford to buy the products from. But that's how capitalism works, with competing capitalists investing money. The irrationality of the conclusion or the outcome, you know, is a part of the way capitalism works. If you don't like the absurdity of overcapacity, then the problem isn't this or that decision. It's a system that produces this kind of problem and does so over and over again from one industry to another. That's a problem of capitalism. In this case, the United States, once dominant, particularly after World War II, has lost that dominance, as it has in so many areas, either to the global south or especially to China, but also to Brazil and India and, and Europe and so forth. Stellantis, by the way, which I notice cutely, keeps being lumped together with Ford and General Motors, people should understand Stellantis is a foreign company. Its headquarters is in the Netherlands, it's not an American company. It swallowed Chrysler, which is a small part of Stellantis. So you already see the intrusion of foreign producers into the so-called big three of the United States, who are anyway smaller than Toyota, etc., etc. I need also to, to stress that for the auto companies, this whole business is now 
very different from what it was. General Motors sells more cars in China than it does in the United States. It has to survive based mostly on countries outside the United States. The United States is quickly becoming a secondary or maybe even a tertiary player in this industry. That's the framework within which all of this is done. The Wall Street Journal's comments are childish, irrelevant, and, you know, the same old boring bleating of blaming the workers. You always do that. You always want to say that whatever the problem is, it's the fault of the workers, since, of course, the alternative is that it's not the fault of the workers, but it's the fault of the managers and the owners. And let's be clear, because this isn't about the auto industry, this is just about plain common sense. All the basic decisions of an industry or an enterprise in capitalism are made by a tiny group of people at the top. They are the major shareholders of the company, and the board of directors elected by the shareholders, and the major ones have the dominant votes. I'm talking about 20, 30, 40 people per enterprise, whether it's a giant like GM or a small firm. So what technology to use, what commodity to produce, where to market it, how to market it, how to transform the advertising, all of those basic decisions which determine the shape of that enterprise's success or failure are made by that group of people. Employees are systematically excluded from that process. The board of directors decides on the salaries of the top officials, those multi-million dollar packages for the CEO, etc., the board of directors decides what share of profits is plowed back into the company versus what share of the profits is paid out to the shareholders. Okay, those are the big decisions, the technology, the marketing, the shareholder distributions, the top salaries. The workers have nothing to do with any of those decisions. So that when you say, gee, the company is not doing well, and you blame the workers who have no decision-making power, or even more narrowly, the wages those workers get, you're just playing on people's not understanding how enterprises work. It's cheap, crappy, unintelligent nonsense, pure BS to try to exempt those who demand and take and make all the key decisions for any responsibility of the consequences. The collapse of the American automobile industry from employing five, six, seven hundred thousand workers to the 150,000 today in the UAW, that's not the fault or the responsibility of the auto workers who have no say in any of the basic decisions. It's the fault of the people who own and run those enterprises. They're just afraid of the responsibility, so they're blaming somebody else. Not worth even the few minutes I've taken to try 
to make fun of it. Now let's turn to the situation at hand. The workers are coming off of a multi-year contract, which is what's normally signed. But the last few years have been years of extraordinary difficulty for these workers. Let's go through the 23 years of this new century, from 2000 to 2023. Auto workers, like all workers in America, have gotten what? Three economic crashes, the dot-com crash of 2000, the so-called Great Recession of 2008 and 9, and the so-called COVID collapse of 2020 and 2021. All of those took a terrible toll on workers who were unemployed for parts of that time, who accepted all kinds of wage and benefit concessions because of the difficulties of this crash, which they had no responsibility for. But as if that weren't enough, what followed before the COVID was even diminished, was one of the worst inflations in modern American history. And before we're done with that, in the last year, a tremendous increase in a short amount of time of interest rates that auto workers have to confront through their credit card debts, through their student loans, through their mortgages, through their monthly auto payments, Come on, you have whacked these workers over and over again in these last 20 years. And what they're trying to do is modestly, let me stress that, modestly catch up what are called these record great wage demands. They're only a record if you conveniently forget that they're trying to catch up to what the inflation did to them, what the interest rate hike which is another kind of inflation, did to them. What the three crashes, let alone the COVID, did to them. And to deny it, to make up a story the way the Wall Street Journal, that's beyond stupid, it's shameful. But of course, that's what they do, that's what you should expect, and your sarcasm is the kindest way with which to greet them. But here's, in a way, even the greater question. Whatever the auto workers get, and I'm mindful as you are of what the Teamsters got in the UPS situation a few weeks ago, especially now when we do not know whether the inflation we're still in, three and a half to four percent is an inflation, that's where we are now, we don't know. I don't, you don't, and no one else does. Whether the inflation will get worse, get better, stay the same. Therefore, if you're signing a contract, you're now signing for the next three, four, maybe five years, that's what they're talking about, and if you don't get real benefits, and if there is an inflation that continues or get worse, then you're condemning the auto workers to more of what the first 23 years of this century have already done to them. So their leader, Mr. Fain, is quite right in making his demands, is quite fair in doing that. The lack of fairness comes from an employer class that wants always more and is never satisfied with more. Last point. The last 40 years of American history have been a mammoth 
redistribution of wealth and income from the poor and the middle to those at the top. That's why our news feeds every night are full of Elon Musk or Jeffrey Bezos or Bill Gates or other people trying desperately to figure out what sporting activities they can engage in with their billions. But for the mass of people, it's been a very hard time. Of course, those who are smart enough and dedicated enough to unify in a union will have greater strength than those who imagine they can go it alone. But the notion that they aren't entitled, that they shouldn't struggle, the alternative is resignation, and resignation to a group of employers who know and accept no limits. They have never stopped. That's why one of the richest among them, Warren Buffett, has to keep reminding us what a strange country the United States is, where billionaires like him pay a much lower rate of income tax than his secretary does with her pay. It's extraordinary. And that the unions are fighting and going down to the wire, well, it's the least they should do. And the truth is, without threatening to strike, they would get even less than what they're able to get when they threaten. Richard, I want to talk a little bit about the history here with the UAW because there are very important lessons for people who care about economic justice, social justice, people who are in unions, people who want to form unions. And there's, you know, there's so much union activity right now at, at all kinds of different places. Even the block that I live on, the the workers at Starbucks, they just organized. They had a union vote. There were 21 employees, 13 to 8 in support of the union. There's lots of, you know, desire for unionization after a long, long period where there was just a constant diminution of union numbers. In the case of the auto industry, but it's not just the auto industry, it's for all workplaces, it really wasn't possible to form a union and get collective bargaining agreements in most shops, and especially in the big industrial plants. There was the, in the American Federation of Labor, craft unions were formed. So if you were a plumber or an electrician or a, a trimmer or a cutter in clothing, there were like craft unions based on trade. But the big industrial workplaces where people are doing skilled, semi-skilled and unskilled work together, they were basically not organized. In the middle of the depression, after you know unemployment had reached, I don't know, maybe 25% officially, one out of every four workers officially were unemployed during the Great Depression following the stock market crash of 1929. The left in the United States, and it was very strong in the unions, it was the Communist Party, there was also a smaller party, Socialist Workers Party, Socialist Party. There was a great focus on organizing auto because the auto bosses and steel and rubber, none of them were giving into the unions. If you struck, it was almost like an armed struggle. Well, the way the UAW came into existence as a union that could get contracts was because the workers carried out this, what's called the Flint strike in the end of 1936. It started December 30th. It went until, I think, February 1937. The problem that the unions were facing at that time, Richard, was that 
There were so many unemployed people who were desperate to get jobs that if you went on strike, there'd be a long line of people, even if they kind of believed in unions, they would be willing to scab because they were desperate to get money. They had to feed their families. So the workers confronted with the sort of impossibility of striking and not having scabs take their jobs innovated. And instead of walking off the job, they decided to seize the factories. And three different factories in Flint, Michigan were seized. And 2,000 workers held those factories. They stayed inside because that way they couldn't scab the, the strike. And that sit-down movement spread all over auto. Then it was going into steel. That's when all these big capitalist corporations decided better to have a labor union that's recognized in a contract rather than the old way of just crushing them. I mean, it's an important lesson because it seems so unfavorable that the workers could actually win. But the innovation, the militancy, the audacity of the workers and of the UAW, again, led by the left. I would recommend everybody read the book organized by Wyndham Mortimer, who was one of the principal organizers of the Flint strike, to really get the vivid details of how this actually happened. But that's how workers got these, what we now consider to be basic rights. It was the militancy, the innovation, the creativity, the solidarity of the workers and, and supported by their families and supported by their communities. Again, you can kind of feel, Richard, that we're not there yet, but we're getting there where this revival of of labor militancy will happen, not because people want to be militants. It's like, in a way, they're compelled because of the greed and, you know, just brutality of the employers. Yeah, I think it's a very, very profound lesson because it's a lesson that the workers apparently have to learn over and over again, that in the end, they are the majority and they have the power. They're intimidated, they are frightened, they are threatened, but in the end, they have the power. They were intimidated, frightened, and threatened in the 1930s, of course they were, but they were unified around the notion, we've got to do something. Our situation is impossible, and it is being made worse by these employers. And guess what? When they put their minds to it, they found another way, and you described it beautifully, the sit-in. By the way, that's where the sit-in as a tactic really got going in this country. People who were fighting racism, the abuse and mistreatment of African Americans later figured out that variations on the sit-in would work in order to get integration moving in this country, in order to get segregation to pass or at least to shrink in this society. So others have learned, and that has always been true of the working class. But I want to focus in for a minute on those sit-ins. Yes, the workers decided not to leave the factory, to sit in, on, and around the machines. And that sent a message. You can't hire other workers because they're not going to be able to work because they're going to be hampered by the workers that are there. But there were other messages that no one perhaps said, but that the employers understood. Namely, it's one thing for a worker to sit on the machine. 
it's another thing which if you anger him, he's going to destroy that machine. And then you're much worse off than if you just have him sitting there. So you better figure out a way to move. In other words, it's a flexing of the muscles. Even if the brains of the people involved couldn't quite wrap themselves around what they were doing, the other side figured it out. I want to also stress the importance of the alliances. The unions did not do it alone. They needed the community. When those workers in Flint, Michigan sat in, they had an immediate problem. You can't eat the machine. How are you going to eat? How are you going to change your clothes? Because it was going on day after day. Guess what? Local churches the wives of these workers, the mothers of these workers, mobilized social organization, community groups, churches, as I said, and they produced the food and they brought it to the factory, handing it through the windows to the worker. This is called solidarity. Local stores allowed working families who had no money because the workers weren't paid wages when they were sitting in, they allowed them to run up a tab so they could afford to buy food, afford to get the clothing, afford the galoshes for their children to go to school in the winter, etc., etc. This was the coordination of the social organizations, the socialist and communist parties that were active, bringing the community often together with the labor movement. You had the kind of mobilization that only the working class can do because they are the majority, because most of the children and the wives and the local stores depend on the workers, male and female workers. Their spouses depend on them. These they discovered as resources which, if you mobilize them and if you target them against the capitalists, go a very long way to make it a level playing field for this game to be played. Not the tilted game of the capitalists using the police or the National Guard to scare and frighten working people. If you mobilize the resources you actually have, you will suddenly discover the power that you also actually have. Some of that is going on with the UAW right now. In their ranks are important allies that in Detroit in particular, a largely African-American community is solid with the union. There is already the kind of community support and solidarity. That has to be built, and if it's done well by the UAW, they will recapture the reputation they once had as a great union leading what other unions are doing. And now it is so important because people like the Starbucks group you mentioned are everywhere forming unions, going on strike. The resurgence of the labor movement in the last two or three years is nothing short of spectacular. And it is very important that these bigger strikes that are getting all this attention be opportunities to show 
the power that labor has, and whether that's with a strike or without a strike, the same issues exist either way, the same opportunity, the same danger. And that's why it's an important thing to remember the history, even as you look at the special conditions of the right now. Indeed. And, you know, Richard, as we move towards the close here, I want to remind our audience that, you know, in the United States, which is now basically getting ready for war with China because China's economy is growing and constituting a competitive threat with the U.S. economy, it's a newer economy. The U.S. is treating all of this economic competition as a national security issue, really as a pretext to sort of clamp down on China. And China will retaliate, is retaliating. It has to. Last week, for instance, they said Apple iPhones will no longer be able to be used in government service. Like, why would the U.S. think that they would take a different path after the U.S. basically tried to shut down their their phone makers? So we're in this situation where the U.S. and China are heading towards a collision course. But in the 1980s, when China agreed to open its domestic market to U.S. auto companies and other U.S. companies and other Western companies, they they flocked in. They flocked in. And nobody put a gun to their head and said, you must invest in China. They wanted to because they could pay workers there a lot less than they were paying them in Flint. And I was part of a movement called the Job is a Right campaign in the in that period, in the 1980s. And we were working with Flint workers who were losing their jobs. Factories were closing. You know, Flint was becoming like, instead of being a thriving working class community, it was being decimated, eventually living with poisoned water as everything devolved. But we made the argument and with these other union activists that, you know, if the auto industry wanted to go to China let them go, but the factories belong to the workers, that the workers made the factories happen, the communities gave the companies tax abatements for decades, and that the workers actually, and we used a a formulation by Francis Perkins, who was the first U.S. labor secretary during the Roosevelt administration in the 1930s, she said, under the pressure of a growing union movement at that time, that a worker's job is a property right, meaning elevating it to a property right contractually. And we made the argument that the city should support workers who actually just took over those factories and said to GM or Ford, well, if you're leaving, fine, but we're going to we're going to seize these and occupy these areas. In other words, another sit down thing. The law is on our side. A job is our property right. Anyway, it was an attempt to sort of build a counter offensive against this anti-labor offensive that was taking advantage of the opening of China. Here we are, Richard, it's really remarkable. The ironies here couldn't be more stark. You know, here we are almost four decades later. China now has, I think, since 2009, 32% of the global auto market. In Detroit, Workers were decimated by the 2008-9 economic crisis, as you said. Their contracts with the between the auto companies who were then bailed out by the U.S., they were ripped up. The workers accepted two tiers. Auto workers were starting. The new hires were being paid almost, you know, like just terrible, terrible wages, very low, not even $20 an hour in a very profitable industry. And the vacancy rate in Detroit went way up. By Even by 2019, 10 years after that crisis began, vacancy rate in housing was 26%, 26% by 2019. 20,000 houses were bulldozed because nobody lived in them. 
you know, when you look at this whole trend and then you think about the way the media is presenting it, like these greedy unions, these greedy unions, they haven't learned their lesson. They're not competitive with non-union places. Well, it was American corporations that went to China precisely because they wanted to destroy those auto workers. It wasn't their unions that they were competing against. They were they compelled the workers in the United States to be part of that race to the bottom to, you know, if you don't lower your wages to the wages of a worker in a third world country, well, we're just going to move there. Anyway, a lot of ironies here. Richard, I'll give you the last word. Yeah, I like to summarize what you just said by saying that the the deal that capitalists or employers offer workers can be reduced to the following. We offer you low wages or no wages. That's your choice. You accept low wages, we'll give you a job. You demand more, we'll leave and you'll have no wages at all. That's like walking down the street and being confronted by a person who says, I'm going to give you a choice. I'm going to either stab you and take your wallet or shoot you and take your wallet. What kind of a person sits there agonizing which way to go versus a person who says, I don't accept the choice that you're offering me. You have no right, etc., etc." When does the American working class stand up and say, we are not going to be given a choice of low wages or no wages? That's what the auto industry did. You accept low or we leave. We keep leaving, showing you we mean business. And then we have the Wall Street Journal write editorials like that nonsense about blaming you for the low wages we try to palm off on you. It is beyond exceptional. Here's a last point. What you're saying about taking over the auto industry, let me give you a present day example. In the Bay Area of California, there's something called, or there was something called, the Anchor Steam Brewing Company, a famous beer, 125 years old, beloved in the Bay Area, drunk all over the United States. Anchor Steam, Anchor Brewing Company. They voted for a union for the first time in 2019. They were bought out by a large corporation, Sapporo, Japanese in this case. July of this year, they were informed by the company that they were going to be shut down. They were all going to lose their job. No, said the unionized workers. We are going to take over this brewery and run it as a worker co-op. We're going to get the mayor and the governor and the senator to help us. We're going to run around denouncing the Sapporo Corporation for taking this industry, these jobs, these tax revenues away. Again, the power of the workers, once they understand that they have it, has no limits. They don't have to be cowed down by the employers. That should be over as a part of our history. And that is already happening. And the auto workers, I hope, will show us more ways to move in that direction. Richard Wolff is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He's the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. You can get that book and check out all of Richard's work at rdwolf.com. That's rdwolff.com. You're listening to The Socialist Program. We'll be back tomorrow. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. 
If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. 